This morning we continue our <clears throat> Advent sermons, which is continuing the broader study of Christ in the Old Testament, and then within that, the narrower look at this child of promise. We have considered the birth of Cain and Abel, who come out of the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, and that the serpent would bruise his heel. Remember, that's the original promise out of which all the rest of the scriptures now flow. They're all, all this story of redemption is flowing out of that little tiny, that little tiny spring. Right? That, that's the promise that now the rest of the scriptures are essentially fulfilling. <clears throat> so we thought about that with Cain and Abel and saw an amazing reversal there because we thought that, again, we didn't think, but had we been tracking along, had we literally been moving through time with Adam and Eve, I'm sure we would have thought that Cain is the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and bring victory. And okay, I see what the Lord is doing. Always beware of reading God's providence. And you, you, you see that, uh, oh, I see what the Lord is doing. He told me he'd give me a son that would crush the head of the serpent. And here he is. We'll name him Cain. And lo and behold, rather than crushing the head of the serpent, he crushes the head of his brother. And we realize, oh boy, uh, we may be in for a long ride here. Uh, it's not going the way that I thought it would go. So this odd reversal, <clears throat> the younger is, is blessed by the Lord, the elder is rejected by the Lord, uh, at least for the time being. So we saw that, and then last week we considered the, the story of the birth of Isaac from Sarah, whose womb was closed, uh, and for a long and extended time. But the Lord made amazing promises that he would make Abram a father, a father of a people, and then the father of many peoples changed his name from Abram to Abraham. And Sarah laughed. Sarah laughed, doubting, in fact, that this would happen because it usually doesn't happen when you're near 100 years old, <laughs> that you uh, give birth to a baby. This was a big joke. Uh, but the Lord caught her laughing and, and uh, acknowledged it, pointed it out. She denied it, but he reinforced it. And, uh, and then, of course, gave after much waiting. Remember, there's this waiting, and this is appropriate for us in this season of Advent, that there's this waiting, this longing uh, that takes place. And, but in time, after some failings on the part of Abram, uh, the Lord still kept his promise, even in spite of the failings, and blessed uh, Abram, even in spite of the laughing. Our God is so gracious, holy, and yet kind and gracious. <clears throat> and so he blessed them, opened the womb of Sarah, and gave this great gift of Isaac, this child of laughter that now we can laugh about and rejoice for. Isn't it amazing and fascinating what the Lord has done and the way the Lord has done it? The, the way God does things, his thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways not our ways. And when we behold the works of the Lord, sometimes all you can do is laugh. You chuckle out of amazement and amusement uh, over the way that the Lord has done what he's done. Well, today we come to our third story. <clears throat> tracking through some of these birth narratives. And today we come to the story of the birth of Samuel. No laughing here. Weeping. Right? There's no laughing. There's no direct promise, but there is weeping. Hannah is a broken woman, and she's longing. She's longing for the Lord to act. And we'll see <clears throat> uh, again here in Hannah a wonderful uh, image uh, personification, uh, analogy, metaphor, however you want to say it, for Israel in her Advent longing. Uh, and not just for Israel, but then also for us, because we too 
are in a season of Advent, and we ought to be longing. We ought to be crying out. It's a, it's a, it is a, uh, 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 I don't know if I want to say, so, I want to be so strong as to say condemnation, but perhaps it is that we don't weep before the Lord and long, not just for stuff, not just for the ending of our particular miseries, but for his coming, his coming. Um, that's what we should be longing for, that Advent hope. <clears throat> well, let's talk about Hannah today, and we'll read um, in a sec. I'll, I'll hold uh, till the end to read Hannah's prayer on the other side of this, but I want to make three points, three simple points uh, today uh, regarding Hannah and link her to Israel in her Advent longing. And so it's Advent pain, Advent prayer, and Advent praise. Advent pain, Advent prayer, Advent praise. You can give me bonus points today for keeping it to three points, all with P's. That's classic pastor stuff, all right? So today I'm really, I'm really filling the role. Advent pain, Advent prayer, Advent praise. Well, of course, first the Advent pain. Unlike Sarah, though I'm sure Sarah had much pain, and how much pain do you have to be to tell your husband actually to sleep with another woman in order that you can have a baby? Okay, that, that's gotta, you've got to be in a pretty low spot there. You have abandoned hope that you can provide what you know your husband needs and wants, and that's an heir. So when you get to the place where you say, okay, sleep with my servant, you know, we take it sometimes like in Old Testament. Well, of course, they did this stuff in the Old Testament. You know, it's like, no, the woman actually told her husband to sleep with her servant. Uh, in order to have a child, knowing how desperately her husband would long for an heir. That's pretty low. I'm sure she was filled with pain. This could not have brought her pleasure the evening she knew that was going on. So that's the reality Sarah was going through. The laughing is not that she had a life of laughing. I'm sure she had a life of pain. It's only when the Lord told her, this is what I'm going to do, she chuckled like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> now? Now? How about, how about before I had my husband sleep with my servant? That would have been great. Uh, but, but now, you know, this is what you're going to do. I don't, I, I don't believe it. Um, so she chuckles. So I don't want to make it seem like, well, Sarah was just this happy-go-lucky, you know, life was good and the Lord blessed her and, and Hannah's a, a woman of pain. I think in both of them we see the pain. And the Lord has given us, we know in the story, particularly with the early matriarchs, uh, in, in uh, Sarah and then Rebecca and with Rachel, the Lord just compounds it with this threefold repetition of the story of barrenness. We thought about it last week that the barrenness of Sarah, the fact that the Lord says to Abram, he calls Abram out of a distant land. He says, Abram, through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. I'm going to work through you, Abram. And Abram gives his life to this call. And he goes to this strange land, trusting the Lord, builds altars wherever he goes, acknowledging the Lord is going to do these amazing things. I mean, how, you know, he is all in. He's all into the promises of God. <clears throat> and yet the Lord feels necessary that to this one, <clears throat> this foundational people, this foundational man, within the story of redemption, he feels the need to drive the point home. That whatever I do through you, it is I who do it through you. <laughs> it's I who will do it. You're not going to bless the nations, though you will. I will bless the nations through you. Now, we've got to keep those two things in balance. right? The Lord is the blesser. 
and he doesn't need you. But he will bless the nations through you. It's not that we don't matter. You know, it's not that we have no significance. We have unbelievable significance because the Lord has given it. We have unbelievable significance because the Lord has given us significance. We have no inherent significance. The Lord does not need us. It's the Lord who blesses. But he has chosen to bless through you, Abraham. This is true for you and me also. What are you? What am I? We're the dust of the earth. We're nothing. We, we, have, no, we have no special significance. You know, we have to think about this. We think about this when we fight and, 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 and stand for the life of the unborn. Why are, why are babies worth saving? This is a really important question. You know, from an atheistic worldview, you get why they're not worth saving. Right? Uh, abortion is what it is, and it's fine because it's just a matter of convenience. And what are we but a bunch of accidental cells globbed together that eventually, I guess, takes on life? I get it. I think they're dead wrong. But what's our argument? Are babies inherently valuable? Everything in us wants to say yes. The answer is no. But they're unbelievably valuable. Not because Bill Spanger says it, but because their creator has said it. The creator has said, that's my image bearer. I don't need them. They're the dust of the earth. They're nothing but dirt. But they're dirt, they're jars of clay that I have invested with the unbelievable, infinite treasure of my image. Therefore, don't you dare harm them. Who are you to harm my image bearers? Unbelievably value. It's not inherent value. It's delegated. It's assigned value. But it's real value. And this is true for Abraham. Abraham, you're not the man. You're not the blesser. I'm the blesser. But I'm going to do it through you, Abraham. I'm going to use you. It's a really important balance that we keep in our lives. And to drive that home, he gives him a barren woman. He closes, using the language from 1 Samuel 1, he closes the womb of Sarah. And Sarah can't. The very thing that God said, I'm going to do through you, they're trying and trying and trying, and it's not happening. And the Lord is, again, making the point I'm going to use you, but you will know. I want it to be real clear again because I know the human instinct, this side of the fall, is to be self-reliant, to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, to forget that we are the creature, to forget that we are the dust of the earth, and to think it's us. It's by the power of our hands. It's by the wisdom of our minds, by our ingenuity, which, by the way, Abram tried by sleeping with Hagar, and it didn't work well. So the Lord drives the point home and gives him a barren wife. But then, apparently, that's not enough. He gives Isaac a barren wife, and that's not enough. He gives Jacob a barren wife. Really just driving the point home where to get the point. Now, we fast forward to the story of Hannah, and we're back to a barren wife. But we're at a barren wife at a really important point in the story. It's not like everybody now in Israel has a barren wife, and then the Lord opens their womb. <clears throat> Although it's the Lord who opens the womb. We should understand that. <laughs> we should understand that all along, right? It's not like, oh, well, she's barren and they're not. No, in that sense, we're all barren. And if we have any children, it's because the Lord opened the womb. That's also a point we could take. That's another sermon. We'll talk about that in Sunday school. 
But the barrenness is made obvious here, as it was with the three matriarchs. It's made obvious at this point because we're at a really important point in the story. We're about to enter into the monarchy. We're at the beginning, the baby stages of a new story of Israel. And with, with Abraham, we're at the beginning of a story. That, that Israel is kind of being birthed itself. But now Israel's being birthed as a kingdom. And so let, let, the Lord says, you know, maybe it's, well, let's make this clear again. And so we pick up with this sort of nondescript family, just a family out there in Ramah, and this guy, Elkanah, who's got a wife, Hannah, who apparently, well, not apparently, the Lord says, the Lord closed her womb. So he married another woman, okay, kind of like, like Abraham deciding, well, look, I need an heir. I love Hannah so much, but as much as I love her, I need an heir. So he marries this other woman, not good, okay. Though again, well, in the Old Testament, they did that stuff. Not good. Bigamy is not approved in the Old Testament. Okay, it's there. It's not approved. But he marries another woman. We get it culturally speaking, but not good. <clears throat> like so many not good things we do because it's culturally acceptable. He marries another woman, and she's just, you know, her name means fruitful. And oh, baby, she got the right name because she's just churning out children which just adds to the pain of his wife, his first wife, his beloved wife, Hannah. Somebody might have told Elkanah, hey, bud, you got one child. Maybe you ought to just, <laughs> you know, like, like Abram didn't keep going back to Hagar, saying, wow, you're really fruitful. Let's keep going. Um, maybe you ought to have said, for the sake of your wife, you got your one child. But no, they kept producing children. That's, a whole, that's another sermon, too, for you husbands out there. Um, so the Lord opens the womb of uh, his second wife, but not Hannah. Now, again, we're at a really important point in the story. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the book prior to this is Judges. Judges. And at the end of the book of Judges, the text ends. You'll remember, it's a, a Judges is a cycle of just, you know, of the people falling into sin, the Lord sending judgment, the people suffering under that judgment, right? Another power comes in and rules over them. They cry out to the Lord in their brokenness. The Lord hears them. The Lord sends a judge to deliver them, and they have so many years of peace. Then when that judge dies, the people return to idolatry. The Lord judges them. They come under oppression. They cry out to the Lord. The Lord hears. He sends a judge and delivers them, and they get so many years of peace, and this cycle keeps going and going, bad cycle. And throughout the book of Judges, one of the little themes of that book is, and there was no king in Israel. And Israel did what was right in its own eyes. And by the time you get to the last couple chapters of Judges, that theme starts coming more rapidly. And there was no king in the land. And there was no king in the land. And there was no king in the land. Israel is now going to become a kingdom. The Lord is going to bless them with a king. We know how 1 Samuel goes. <clears throat> the Lord is going to bless them with a king. But they are in a period of real squalor and emptiness and brokenness. Hannah is in many ways the personification, the incarnation of, of Israel's longing, of Israel's brokenness, of Israel's barrenness, of Israel's emptiness. <clears throat> And so the book of 1 Samuel highlights her because it's from her that we get Samuel, and through Samuel, we get David. But Israel kind of does what Elkanah does, right? They, they're not getting what they want. Right? They, they're not getting what they want by their trust in God. 
And so like Elkanah, who really wants an heir, Israel really wants a king. And so we know the story is not really, again, the text for today. But you know what they do. They marry Saul. Right? They're going to they're gonna try to have fruitfulness some other way. They're going to they're gonna go to Saul. And that is not going to work well. But the Lord will provide by his sovereign hand. You want it your way? Go ahead, try it. Have a king like the other nations. Go have a child like other parents have children. Go ahead and see how it works. They'll oppress you. They'll enslave you. It'll be a disaster. You want that? Go do it. Abram, you, you want to sleep with Hagar? Go do it. See what happens. Oh, you have Ishmael. He'll be an ass of men, and he'll perpetually be a problem to you. I hope you, I hope you liked what happened there. They go to Saul, and of course it doesn't work well, but God sovereignly gifts Israel with David. Hannah is a woman of great pain. She's suffering. Not only is she suffering in her barrenness, she's got this other woman who is like plaguing her, poking her, ribbing her until she's breaking down in tears. They go up to the temple to work, or to the uh, where the tabernacle first was there in Shiloh. They come to make a sacrifice, and the woman, you know. This time of, of worship, which should be a time of real humility and a time of, again, being encouraged by the gift of God, is a time of utter pain for her. Because here you got Elkanah dishing out portions, and it's made very plain and clear because the, the other woman's getting all these you know, portions for all her children, and Hannah only for herself. Though Elkanah does try to bless her by giving her a double portion. But still, it's very, very painful. And so the whole family goes up to worship, but she is by herself. Weeping, bitterness, pain in the midst of her barrenness, her emptiness, her inability. And this is the metaphor of Advent. You know, Evars, was, we were just talking in there before about celebration and Christmas celebration and how long it lasts. And what is it. You know, one of the... I, I, this has hit me. I know nothing about this. I, I'm so... I'm so uh, I'm so malnourished in the really in the strong Christian tradition of church calendar and so forth. I'm just, you know, I'm a typical American. You know, Christmas season begins after Thanksgiving and, you know, and you start that's when you put maybe lights on or maybe go get your tree a few weeks before Christmas. It's only recently, I'm kind of ashamed to say, that I've been reading and hearing about like the traditions of Advent. And there's this particular woman down in uh, down in White Plains. Uh, she's actually a, a pastor in the, I guess, a, a minister in the Episcopal Church. Very conservative woman, but nonetheless, uh, that's not for what we're debating here. But she's a woman who's written a lot on Advent, and actually pretty good stuff. Really good stuff. Very conservative person. Uh, where, you know, Obviously, we have different views about whether she should be in the pulpit, but uh, has a lot of great things to say, and a good theologian, actually. Um, but just reading her, I've been seeing her tweets about Advent. It's just kind of been triggering me to read more and so forth. And, um, and you know, in, 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 the, in the traditions of Advent, you, they don't put a tree up until Christmas Eve. And, and you know, that it's there at that point that you start to now celebrate Christmas. But prior to that, you know, in the season we're in, it's Advent. And Advent is a season of fasting. For us, it's all celebration. We're celebrated out by the time we get to Christmas. You know, but in the season of Advent, it's not. That's why you have 12 days of feasting. The 12 days of Christmas. We won't sing it. But you know, the 12, the 12 days of Christmas. Because Advent is a time of longing. It's a time of weeping. 
It's a time of crying out to the Lord. It's a time of coming to grips with the fact of our barrenness. And then, as we celebrate the birth of Christ, and in so, in so doing, the certainty of his second coming, we celebrate and we feast. I realize how much more American I am than Christian. It's like my days and my seasons are shaped much more by Americana than they are by the Christian tradition, my 2,000-year Christian tradition. I'm so much more shaped by my, whatever, 300-year you know, uh, um, American traditions. I'm not, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm not saying it's bad, but sometimes I feel a little, I feel a little weak because of it. I feel uh, like I'm missed out, missing out on something that our brothers and sisters, it's something to have that woven. Imagine, imagine if we had a month of like celebratory longing. I mean, we're not, we know what's coming because we're on this side of Christmas, but what would that do to us? If it would just shape our whole year. And man, we'd celebrate Christmas with, with uh, some maybe different vigor. I don't know. But Hannah, Hannah is a picture of that Advent longing. And may we, may we have it. Well, let's get then to the Advent prayer. We get her mourning and her grieving. She is barren. And she's being poked and prodded. It's part of why I chose the Revelation 2 passage for our word of exhortation this morning because, you know, the church in Smyrna, um, again, right, they feel like Hannah. We're nothing. We have nothing. We're barren. We're weak. We're poor. And the Lord says in parentheses, but I tell you, you're rich. And who are you going to listen to? You going to listen to the other woman? You going to listen to her poking and jabbing and ribbing you to the point of tears? Or are you going to listen to the Lord God? Let him tell you who you are. All right, that's a pain. But what about the prayer? Well, Hannah comes and she prays. She makes her way in the midst of her pain. She slides over by herself. She goes away and she's just praying within her heart. Eli, you know, he's clueless. Uh, you know, and we know him. He's got his own problems. If you read through 1 Samuel, you know that. Uh, so he's, he, he lacks the gift of discernment. He thinks the woman's drunk, which I'm sure was helpful to poor broken Hannah. He comes over and tells her, hey, listen, uh, lady, lay off the bottle. And she says, well, I'm, I'm not drunk. <laughs> Anyway, this woman's just grieving and pain, and the, the priest comes over and tells her to, to stay away from the hard liquor. Um, she's off by herself, and she's, she's praying. And she's pouring her heart out to the Lord. And it's an amazing prayer because she's not just asking the Lord for the blessing of a child. She makes a vow and says, I want a child who I'm willing to give away. I'm willing, as she says at the end, lend him to the Lord. But what she means is, I'm willing to commit him and commission him to service within your house all of his days. I, 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 I want to be part of the thing. I want to be part of the redemptive hope. It's really, I think, worth meditating on. I encourage you to go back and do it, and you can reflect on her prayer of praise, which we'll get to in a second, on the flip side of it. But it's really an amazing prayer. This is not merely, I want a baby. This is not merely I want to be a mom, although I'm, I'm sure she does. There's something else going on here. I want to be part of your work of redemption. I want to have a child who can participate. I want to be used by one who will be in this long line of promises. This woman, clearly, and you'll see it if nothing else, if, if you don't take it from just this prayer and this vow she makes, Lord, if you give me a child, I give him to you. I give them to you for the service of your name. 
than when you see her prayer of praise. I mean, this is not your typical Christian. This is not your typical mom or dad. This is a woman who has unbelievable, redemptive kingdom perspective. And she's praying to the Lord through her bitterness. I mean, when I say bitterness, I mean she's not bitter toward God. I just mean her pain. And I love this, because, and here's a model for us. Again, we don't want to turn these sermons into be like Hannah, but it doesn't mean there's nothing from Hannah that we can, can't take away. I mean, we, we can. There's much we can take away. And one of them is this spirit of fervent prayer. This is a woman who literally, in this case, unburdens herself to the Lord. Literally unburdens herself. She goes and she prays. She makes this vow. Eli comes over, accuses her of being drunk. She says she's not drunk. Eli then kind of, I don't know whether it's just a sort of a formality, but he says, go and may the Lord grant what you've asked of him. May the Lord hear. I mean, Samuel. You know, may, may the Lord give you this gift you've asked for, Samuel. May, may God give you a Samuel. And Hannah says, you know, Lord, may I find favor, which is the word Hannah. Oh, Lord, may indeed. You know, Hannah means, you know, finds favor with the Lord. And she feels like she has not found favor. And so Eli says, may he give you a Sammy. He says, may I, be a, may I be a Hannah. You know, there's a little play on words in the Hebrew there. And then we're told that when she does that, she goes away. She goes away. This is in verse 18. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in, in your sight. That is, may I be a Hannah. And so the woman went her way, ate, and her face was no longer sad. So here's this woman just dealing with such grief, such pain, but she comes to worship, she goes off by herself and she literally just empties herself before the Lord. She just pours it out, lays all of her concerns, all of her cares, all of her anxieties, all of her petitions, all of her anguishes, all of her anger, I'm sure, out before the Lord, the issues she's got with this other one. And when it's done, it's done in such a way that having entrusted her cares to the God that she knows, she's able to do something really amazing. And that is wash her face, eat, because she wouldn't eat, and then get on with it with a smile on her face. No baby, but I've entrusted it to my father. It's an amazing thing. David, David does this later when he, the Lord brings the judgment against him on his child after Bathsheba. Remember, he won't eat. He won't bathe. He's weeping. He's crying out, begging the Lord to have mercy. And in that case, the Lord says, no. No. And the child dies. And David gets up, washes his face, eats, and goes to worship. And in some sense, okay, I've entrusted this to my father. My father has answered me. Therefore, what can I do? He actually tells the servant, what can, what can I do? I thought while the child was alive, who knows? But now that he's answered, the child will not come back to me, but I'll go to be with him someday. And that's all I can do. I've done everything. I've laid it in God's hands. God has spoken. In this case, God has not yet spoken, but she's confident in the one to whom she has entrusted the petition. May it be so of us. May it be so of us that we pray and we really are open before the Lord and so honest and raw before the Lord that we can give it into his hands and therefore find relief because if it's in our Father's hands who loves us so much to have sent his only son for us, if it's in his hands, then what? ultimately, at the end of the day, what else needs to be done? 
what else can I do? I'll, I'll be faithful in the meantime. But what I realize is that the burden of the thing is not on me. That's the point of all the barrenness. The burden, Abram, of blessing the nations is not on you. Look, I've given you a barren woman. I'm going to do something. I'm going to bless them through you. And this is true. In, the problem is, again, we forget that we're the dust of the earth. We forget that we are the creature. We begin to think because we lower our eyes. We keep our eyes very horizontal. We don't ever lift them up to the heavens or lift them out to the horizon. Right? Our eyes are always on the wind and the waves. Our eyes are always on one another. Our eyes are always on the problems that are besetting us. And we look at everybody else trying to solve their problems. We think it's what we have to do. We have to solve our problems. It's about rolling our sleeves up, getting it done. That's what we're about. And very quickly, that burden ends up on our shoulders. And we forget that it's the Lord who does what he does through us. Yes, it's you, but it's him through you. And Hannah, apparently, at least in this moment, gets that. Like, Lord, here's what I'm begging you for. I'm asking you for. I'm actually making a vow. If you will do this, here's what I will do. It's in your hands. I can let go. It's an amazing prayer. And in that way, I think, again, it's an Advent prayer. This should be our spirit. What should, what should characterize us in this Advent season? I don't just mean these four weeks, but I mean we're in the season of Advent, which is the time between the times, this time between his first coming and his second coming. We're looking forward. We're longing for him to do what he said he would do. We pray. We pray. We entrust our cares and our petitions into his hands. It doesn't mean everything will go well. It doesn't mean, hey, if you do this, you get your baby. If you do this, it's all smooth sailing from here. Remember the church in Smyrna. You are going to suffer. You are rich. And you're going to suffer. Stand in there. He who overcomes, I'll give the crown of life. So it doesn't mean it's smooth sailing. It just means it's in his hands. And if it's in his hands, then whatever the Lord bestows to me is from his hand, and he's got this. And if he's got this, and I'm trusting in him, I can smile right in the face of the storm. So Hannah, terrible pain, Advent pain, but then Advent prayer. And her prayer is so wonderful again because it is, Lord, this child for the sake of the kingdom. I, I think, and I almost changed the reading of exhortation, but I'm glad I did, and I'm glad I kept it in Smyrna. But, <clears throat> but in James 4, it's interesting because James says, you don't receive because you don't ask. And then he says over here, and you ask and don't receive because you ask for the wrong reasons. You adulterous. You ask for reasons of self-glorification. You ask for reasons of just, you have this idolatrous urging, and you want me to fill it. And you think, hey, I'm asking my God to give me what I want. Why won't he won't give it to me? This is James. This isn't Bill Spanger. He actually calls them adulterers and adulteresses. We have to be careful of this in our prayer life. That's why we don't want to make the point of the sermon, okay, so here's the model for your prayer, and if you really want what you want, then this is how you have to do it. Don't take that from this. Hannah is a unique person in the history of redemption. It is through her that God does give Samuel who brings us to David. 
And God does miraculous things for his people, and some stuff I just can't believe is so amazing and ridiculous. And God has his ways, and they're not mine. But Hannah is not a 10-step lesson to how to get what you want in your prayer life. Don't read this that way. What you should read from Hannah, the model that you can get, is pray, leave it in his hands, and smile. That you can get. But that does not mean you get the baby. That doesn't mean you get the job. That doesn't mean you get the good diagnosis. It doesn't mean that. What it means is you've got a father. You, you, what prayer is doing here is acknowledging, what Hannah is doing is acknowledging, I'm barren. This is what prayer is. Prayer is getting down and recognizing before your God that you are dust. Prayer is bowing before your creator and acknowledging you are a creature and that you do not have the power to do anything. That you do not have the power to accomplish even the calling he's given to you. This is what prayer does. We lay ourselves before God and acknowledge that he is God. Now, that model, go ahead and take from this. Who knows what the Lord will do? But I can promise you this, that if we pray like, pray like that, we will be the kind of people who in due time, when the trials come, and when the Lord is silent, when we just so badly wish he would speak, and when he doesn't give what we so wish he would give, we will be the kind of people who can deal with it. We'll be the people who can, can deal with it because we trust our Father because we've developed the habit and the discipline of emptying ourselves before him in prayer and acknowledging we are nothing. And he is everything, and all that we have is from him. So we've got Advent pain. We've got Advent prayer. And then finally, we've got Advent praise. Because in this case, the Lord opens the womb of Hannah and gives her with this child, this child Samuel. The Lord has heard the Lord has heard my request. I have asked of the Lord, and he has gifted me with Samuel. Indeed, the Lord has heard. And he gives barren Israel a child. He gives barren Hannah a child. He gives desolate Israel one who will bring them their king. It's going to be Samuel who will bring them David and establish the monarchy. And it ought to be clear to everyone it is the Lord's doing. Now, that brings us to Hannah's praise, which is chapter 2. I'll just read it uh, to you quickly. And in so doing, you will definitely hear the song of Mary in this because Mary, too, while Mary doesn't have Hannah's pain, um, she nonetheless acknowledges and empties herself in the same way Hannah does in that she understands that the child given to her at the end of the day is not for her, though it is, but it's for God and it's for the world. Hannah gives her child away. She's an amazing woman. She gets this child, weans him, and gives him away. He's living far away now. As a little boy, she entrusts him to the hands of the priest. <clears throat> and Mary, from the very time when she's told she's going to give a child, you got to know, you're going to have to give him away. It will be Simeon in the Song of Simeon that we sing at the end of this, who will tell Mary, hey, a sword's going to pierce your soul here. This is going to be a costly birth because you're going to have to give your child away in a very, very, very painful way. Hannah's pain is sort of on the front end. She gives her child away in a very joyful way. Mary will have to give her child away also in a joyful way, but one that's going to put a sword right through her soul. 
So Hannah, like Mary, prays. Mary says this at the front end, recognizing what the Lord has done for her. Hannah does this after receiving the child and as she's giving the child away. But listen to the theology. Listen to the perspective of this mom. May we be moms and dads that have this perspective. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn, my strength, is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is, uh, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken. Those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven fullness, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now that's a prayer. That's praise. That's not just, oh Lord, thank you so much for hearing my prayer. That's not, oh Lord, thank you for this beautiful baby you gave me. Well, that, that's all fine to say. That's all great. Here's a woman who in the birth of this child lifts her eyes and she can see out to the horizons of what the Lord is doing. And he is doing something eschatological. He is doing something redemptive. He's doing something, this is an act of judgment that she can see in the birth of this child. What she can see in the birth of her child is that the tables of the universe are being overturned. And that the way the world makes sense of reality is backwards and wrong and will ultimately be shattered into pieces. And she now, by God's grace, has seen the world upside down. She's seen the world right side up, if you will. And she sees what the Lord is doing. We're going to see this with, we're not going to because we'll do it later, with the story of Saul and David, right? Saul is the obvious champion. Saul is the obvious guy. He's the king as the world sees kings. But the Lord takes the mighty, the powerful king, and just flips it over and takes this shepherd boy who no one knows from some town called Bethlehem and makes him the champion over the mighty Goliath and makes him to be king while Saul goes mad and dies in some battle and, you know, in, in shame. And David will become the man after his own heart, after God's own heart, and the one who will establish a line that will lead all the way to Jesus Christ. Like, Hannah can see this. Hannah sees in this act the Lord doing something mighty and great and redemptive. And we, standing at this place, having seen not just the birth of Samuel, though we have, that's part of what builds confidence in our Advent hope, but 
as we know, we've seen the greater Samuel, the greater prophet, the greater priest, and the greater David, the greater king. We've seen the birth of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can sing with Mary and we can sing with Hannah. So our Advent is not weeping. It can be heavy in that we're, we deal with the afflictions of this world, the, de the deals that Smyrna had to deal with. But ours is at the same time celebratory longing. It's celebratory longing because we know what has been done. Look what he's, he's turned the tables and he will one day complete it. This is what we celebrate. And in Christmas, of course, in the tradition of the year, we fully celebrate it. But our Advent hope now is celebratory. Listen to the songs that we're singing during Advent. When you sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, notice even the tone of it. It's kind of heavy. Da, 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 da. It's kind of a heavy song. But then rejoice, rejoice. You know, there's that. Both of those tones are in Advent. And we ought to hold truly to both of them. This longing and pain of this world of woe that we have to live in and deal with. But at the same time, the joy of knowing that our God is the God who turns the tables. Look, he's done it. Look what he's done in Mary. And look what he's done on the cross and in the grave. The dead, he has made alive. The mighty empires of Rome, he's broken. The book of Revelation. How much confidence can we have in this season of Advent as we look forward to what he will do? Do not be troubled. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, Paul says. That is, don't see the world the way the world sees the world. But be transformed in the renewing of your mind. See the world the way Hannah sees the world. See the world the way Mary sees the world. See the victory that comes through the death of the cross. So that when we suffer, when we struggle, like the Smyrnians, I always think of Polycarp because Polycarp was probably sitting in that church when John read this, or the letter was read from John to the church in Smyrna. It's a guy like Polycarp who, when he's finally being burned at the stake, can say, right in the presence of his captors, he prays, Lord, how thankful I am that you have found me worthy to suffer like Christ and to be an acceptable sacrifice to you. How can you pray such a prayer? Well, if you see the world the way Hannah sees it, if you see the world the way Mary sees it, if you see the world through the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then everything that's backwards is made right and upside down is set right side up in him. May that be the way we see the world in this Advent season. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your miraculous opening of the womb for Hannah, but more importantly, that through Hannah, Samuel, and through Samuel, David, and through David, the Lord Jesus Christ, and through Christ, the blessing that flows far as the curse is found. And we ourselves, Father, swept up in the glory of that blessing. How we thank you for that. Guard us from being conformed to the pattern of this world, not just in its sinful behaviors, but in the way it views reality. You alone are holy, O Lord God, as Hannah said, and as Mary said, you are holy and there is none beside you. There is no one like you. And may we see all things in the light of your sovereign power and pleasure. Indeed, Father, remind us that the burden is not on us, but that you have it all. 
And yet, nonetheless, you have chosen us as your vessels. We are jars of clay. But in these jars, you have placed an infinite treasure and made us, these humble jars, to be of great value, not because of who we are, because of who you are. So we thank you for that. Bless us as we go from this place to serve you. Make us faithful, we pray, with new vigor and valor and courage to the glory of your name, we pray. Amen.